1: All right, so Matt, there was this sheep farmer, and he's got this talking dog, right? Well, one day he asked it to go get all of his sheep into the pen. So a little while later, the dog comes back, and he goes, job's done. I got all 40 sheep accounted for. And the farmer goes, 40? I don't have 40. I have 36 sheep, not 40. And the dog goes, I know. I rounded them up. <laughs> Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam, and my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is. Is Graveyard Tales. All right, everybody. Here we are again. Matt, how you doing tonight, brother? Man, I am better than I was last week. Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah, you were you were struggle bussing last week for sure. Whew. Lord. Vo- voice came back. Everything yeah. feeling good. So good. You got better. I got a toothache. So, you know, all good things. (laughs) Going to the dentist tomorrow. So, hopefully, we get it fixed, but whatever. Um, Before we get into it, we want to say go check out the Podbelly Network at podbelly.com. You can find a list of shows that we're happy to be associated with. And I guarantee you, you're going to find a show on there that you like, and you may not find it anywhere else. Um, We also want to thank tonight's sponsor, Fume. We will talk more about them shortly. And while you're on the internet doing your internet thing, go over to patreon.com slash You can sign up to become a patron. Uh, We've got three different levels. Our $10 a month, they get video versions of this episode. They get the ad-free audio version of the episode, plus audio and video versions of our weekly bonus episodes. And we try to put out a bonus episode every week, even if we're dark on the main channel. So you will have something new to listen to if you become a patron and I'm not going to spoil anything. I'm not going to any of that. No, no. Uh, what is it? Duh. I guess that this is technically a spoiler, but not, not, <laughs> not exactly. Not exactly. Not exactly. This is a teaser, a teaser. There you go. Um, uh, Matt and I are in discussions about adding something else to our $10 a month patrons to make it, even more better. So yeah. go over there, sign up to become a patron. You're going to find something on there. You enjoy.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. And like I said, we've got such a huge catalog now. Um, You can go through and find all kinds of shows. Um, We do um, follow-ups on our regular episodes. So that's some, you know, if you, if you find a topic that you really dig, there's a chance there's a patron where we discuss it a little bit more in depth. Or go down a side
1: street that we didn't go down the original episode. Right. So and check it out. This one's going to have one of them. That's so, right. And, as another teaser, this one's going to have a Patreon <laughs> bonus connected to it. So that's right. That's right. And and we'll mention again a little bit later on what that is going to be.
2: All right, guys. We're going to take a minute and talk about one of our newest sponsors, Fume. Now, fume is F U M and it's got the two little dots over the U. I don't know what they call those.
1: I don't know. We're <laughs> we're dumb southerners. I don't know what those things are called.
2: But fume is this new innovative device designed to help you break bad habits. Mm-hmm. Okay? You know, we all have bad habits. We all do odd things like we, you know, chew our fingernails or you know, we 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 use things that we know aren't good for us and we do it anyway it's a bad habit fume helps you break those bad habits and we're not talking about some weird kind of mind game we're not talking about hypnotism or or any of that stuff we're talking about replacing your bad habit
1: with the fume right and Y'all all probably know what my bad habit is. If you watch the videos of our episodes, Matt has the same habit. And I recently had a tooth pulled. Well, when you have a tooth pulled, you can't partake in the bad habit that I have. Well, the fume has helped me out tremendously to get through that. Because all you do is you breathe through the fume. So using the fume has helped with the oral fixation of my habit and with having something in my hand because it's a nice weighted yeah, uh, ni- nice weighted device thing. It's metal and wood, so it's very, it's very solid. It's
2: very fiddly.
1: Yeah. Very fiddly. It's yeah, fiddly. It's, that's kind of cool. You can click it uh, because it's magnetized, so the two ends are magnetized together, so you can click it open and close. You can spin the little end of it, so it's very tactile, and, and you can use it as a fidget thing or like I did as a fidget thing and breathing through it to get that sensation as well. So if you're interested in the fume and and you're interested in breaking a bad habit, then all you've got to do is go to tryfume, that's T-R-Y-F-U-M dot com slash tails and use our code tails, T-A-L-E-S to save 10% when you get the journey pack and do that today.
2: Yeah, try fume. Instead of electronics, it's completely natural. Instead of vapor, it's flavored air. And instead of harmful chemicals, fume uses all-natural, delicious flavors. So to try fume today, head to tryfume, T-R-Y-F-U-M.com and use our code TAILS, T-A-L-E-S, and you'll save 10% off when you order the Journey Pack.
1: Matt, that's all the housekeeping and stuff that I got. So why don't you tell us what are we talking about tonight, brother?
2: Okay, so tonight uh, we're gonna we're gonna cover uh, a really broad topic. We're, we're gonna try and narrow it down uh, to our focus, um, but we're gonna talk about the legends of Appalachia
1: mm-hmm.
2: and that would be saying we're gonna you know like we're gonna talk about um how many different kinds of fish there are (laughs) okay (laughs) Uh, okay i mean you know a huge broad topic but there are so many stories and legends that come out of appalachia um that aren't just you know the routine you know it's you know the, the 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 like we talk about every 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 town's got one of these haunted railroad tracks mm-hmm. and and you know they have a haunted bridge or if you if you go over it and, and you honk your horn it is, th- those are all over the country but there are so many legends that are a part of Appalachian history.
1: Oh yeah, that was okay, one of my is, favorite things about living up there in Appalachia was the yeah. The just the the stories and the legends that you got from the old timers and all that.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and you know these these aren't always just let me sit down and and you know spin a yarn about something that happened to me when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. It's more than that. Yeah, it, it's more than that. It is it is ingrained in the history. Oh yeah, and you know right here where I am, I we're right here on the edge. Mm-hmm. Of what is considered Appalachia. Yeah. And it it's it's a much bigger area than I think most people realize. I think so many people think about, you know, Northern Virginia, West Virginia, um Kentucky. You know, K- yeah. Kentucky. Most of the people have those, that, that region in mind when they think of it, but it stretches so far, and Adam's gonna get more into the into the geography of it. Um that you know, you're you're looking at Southerners, Northerners,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, people that live in the mountains, people Middlers. that live, yeah. I mean, it's 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 just all over the board, and I think that's what makes these these legends so special. Mm-hmm. Is you know they they come from the backgrounds of all walks of life, but that's something that everybody has in common. You know, are are these are these stories? So, uh, as always, to to understand where these stories come from, why why they have um, such a unique quality, we got to talk about the history of the region mm-hmm. and and the people and, and the geography and everything, and then you can better understand how these stories come about. So, so Adam, uh, talk to us about Appalachia.
1: All right. So as we always say, go check our sources down in the bottom of the show notes. This is another one of those episodes. As Matt and I were saying before the mics came on, there is no way that either of us could extensively cover in depth our side of the research. There's mm-hmm. no way. So we will have the sources down at the bottom of the show notes where you can find where we found all this information. Plus, if something in here intrigues you, you can continue that information and find more about it than we were able to cover because this may be a fairly long episode anyway, but we can't do a six hour podcast. You know, we're not Joe Rogan with his four to six hour show. We can't do that.
2: I think some of our listeners just dozed off when you said that.
1: Yeah, probably. <laughs> six hours. Six
2: hour podcast. Jeez. <laughs> with your monotone voice, that ain't
1: happening. <laughs> Um, Now, and I'll I'll talk more about this later, but the earliest European settlers to the Appalachian region were originally from the highlands bordering Scotland and England, with many uh, arriving by way of Ulster, Ireland. So these Scotch-Irish settlers, as they became known, formed the core community of what is known today as the Central Appalachian Region, which spans parts of Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia, Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia. But the Appalachian Mountains are in, and like Matt was saying, it's extensive. They're in Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, Kentucky, West Virginia, Maryland, Washington, D.C., Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine. I mean, that's the eastern seaboard. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Really? Basically, yeah. The whole eastern seaboard is uh, pretty much considered uh, part of the Appalachian region. Now, obviously, it's not all the mountains and hollers of the Appalachian Mountains, but it's Appalachian basins, the, Mm -hmm. uh, the Appalachian lowlands, stuff like that. But it's still part of the Appalachian range. Now, let's look at some of the plant and animal life from Appalachia. So from Maine to Georgia, the Appalachian mountain system was once almost totally covered with forest. Today, some of the best and most extensive broadleaf deciduous forest in the world still flourish in the Appalachians and bordering areas, notably in southern Appalachia, which is Tennessee, Georgia, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Now to the north are the conifers. So red spruce, balsam, fern, which grow the high, at the highest elevations and distinguish the Canadian and Maine woods, and the northern hardwoods—sugar maple, buckeye, beech, ash, birch, and red and white oak—so farther south are the hickory, poplar, walnut, sycamore, and at one time the important and before they were destroyed by blight, plentiful chestnuts. So, yeah. I I honestly didn't know that—that that was new to me. But they uh, in in the southern part of Appalachia there were chestnut trees. Just plentiful chestnut trees, but then a blight came through and wiped them out, and we lost all of our chestnuts. So we can't roast them on an open fire now. We have to import our chestnuts to roast over an open fire. Which just imported <laughs> chestnuts are just not the same. That's right. Know. I mean, so we lost we lost our nuts. Yeah, and oh. now we have to import them. homegrown USA nuts are the best for USA people. <laughs> Outside the US, you might not like. Homegrown USA nuts, you know? That's right. That's right. (laughs) But Now, all of these plus a lot of the other 140 species of trees of Appalachia are found in the southern mountain region. Now, the interdependent system of southern plant growth known as the Appalachian forest is highly complex. So it's estimated that of some 2,000 species of Appalachian flora, perhaps 200 are native and wholly confined to the southern Appalachians. So ferns, mosses, and mushrooms of many species are also part of the complex Appalachian plant life. So if you go into the Appalachian Mountains in the southern region, you're going to see stuff there that you don't see anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Which, very similar to when we were talking about the um, Big Thicket. There's stuff in there that you don't see anywhere else. It, it always amazes me when I look into different regions the especially in North America because we forget how vast and how unique some of these areas are we go okay we're going to we're, we're going to North Carolina you go to the city and you stay in the city stay in mm-hmm. a hotel and then you come home if you get out into the woods, you get out into the the country area of these states there's it's still vast unique area of land and you forget that when you live in the city and only travel to the cities so it it just amazes me when you see this and that ties into the legends if you mm-hmm. spend your time in the cities you may get the you know catchy little Sayings of oh, we got, you know, Biggie McBigfoot lives here, whatever. <laughs> but you get out into the the country parts, the mountainous regions, and you get some of those wild legends that are just amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um
2: I mean, we're gonna get more into them, but they there's just so many of them. Mm-hmm. And 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 they're like I said earlier, they're tied to that region. Um because of how unique the forests are, mm-hmm. um, the the mountains, and I think a lot of the mystique that comes with not just the, the, a, a mountain range. It, it comes from the people that inhabit right. those mountains, right. and I, you know, I'm not I'm not talking about you know off the gridders or any of that stuff. the The people that that settled there. The people that made that land their own.
1: Seven, and, eight, twelfth generation lived. Yeah,
2: and and they nourished it and they 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 treasured it and they they made sure that it was there for generations to come. And that is what really makes it so fascinating when it comes to these legends and stories, because they were they were passed down, they were retold. They were retold. People Went to great lengths to to keep these stories because it was not just a story; it was a story associated with the history. Right. Right. And and, and you know it, that's really great. I, I and I think that that pride in in those areas is what's kept these stories alive for all these mm-hmm. decades.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree. Now, one thing we need to look at to understand maybe some of these legends is the animals that live there currently and used to live there. So bison, elk, and wolves were once common to the Appalachians, but they disappeared long ago. But elk subsequently have returned to the northern part of the mountain range. Now, caribou and moose are still found in the northernmost corners of this region, but scattered through other areas are the black bear White-tailed deer, wild boar, fox, raccoon, beaver, and numerous other small animals. All areas of Appalachia support an abundant bird life. In the Smoky Mountains alone, there's 200 varieties of game birds and songbirds. And that's just the ones that they've recorded. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So you get into some of those areas. There's probably stuff in there that they have not recorded yet that only live in that area. So, who settled there? Well, we kind of touched on that, but the settlers' culture already distinctive was enriched by the influence of the original Cherokee as well as by the later influx of Swedish, Finnish, and German woodsmen, enslaved Africans, and Welsh miners. So, the resulting mix forged a uniquely American culture which was fiercely independent, had its own style of music, art, folklore, and speech. hmm Now... The Appalachian region was birthplace to several entertainers. So Lucille Ball, Patsy Cline, uh, Cormac McCarthy, and scholars like uh, Henry Louis Gates, Jr. And Appalachia offers a rich slice of American history because of that and just because of where it is. But as we're going to talk about, it's often steeped in mythic lore and stereotyped as backward, uncultured and poor. So, yeah, I mean, even for, you know, Hicks like me and you, we've heard those. <laughs> yeah. The, those, those stories. Oh, then dang hillbillies, you know, which I'll touch on why, why they're called hillbillies. If, if you didn't know that, but, that is when you talk about the mountains, you know, West Virginia, Kentucky, stuff like that. People, even Tennessee, people are like oh, they're backwards.
2: Mm-hmm. Those, yeah. those oh, yeah.
1: crazy, you know, hillbillies up there. I mean, yeah, it's a it's a
2: big it's a big part of of Tennessee. You know the um the idea of uh, you know hillbillies and and folks that live up in the mountains being yeah backward. That's a good that's a good mm-hmm. way to put it.
1: Um, it's not true. (laughs) Well, for some people it is as a, as a, as a rule. Yeah. It's not (laughs) general out. Generality is not much, but for some people (laughs) it's very true.
2: But there, but there was, uh, there was different culture that from the outside looking in may appear, you know, backwards or odd just because it's different. Well, and Um, and just because that that happens
1: here, I mean, that happens in
2: Tennessee,
1: you know? Oh, yeah. People hear accent like mine or accent like yours and go, man, they dumb. Mm -hmm. They dumb as hell. That's right. Well, I actually I'm your doctor tonight, sir. So you Mm -hmm. shut up. (laughs) So the various eastern woodland Indian groups live there, including the Penacook, the Mohican, the Susquehanna all inhabited the northern half of Appalachia for centuries before the European settlements. And in the southern mountains, the Cherokee were predominant. So warfare and eviction had driven most of the Indian population from the mountains by the mid-19th century. So they, well, we'll talk about it. The Cherokee were one of the major indigenous tribes in the Appalachian mountains where the European settlers came in and and all that. So uh, we'll look at them briefly. Um, The Cherokee were hunters and gatherers foraging the Great Smoky Mountains in the lowlands of the southern Appalachians for food while hunting, fishing, and trapping game. So by 2000 BC, Cherokee culture had spread over hundreds of miles of mountains governed by their clan system and town leaders. They passed on their history and religious beliefs through storytelling ceremonies and dances, which is still how a lot of their culture is passed on. I think it's amazing anytime I see a Native American ceremony, it's just mm-hmm. am- amazing to me. It, it you know, that's, it's the, the legend and the culture and the history of the Northern, Northern America. You know, Mm -hmm. and it's just it's great to see it still live on. But in 1540, Spanish explorer and conquistador Hernando de Soto came through here looking for gold, demanding food, fighting and enslaving the people. So worse were the diseases that came with him, lacking the immunity to combat them. Indigenous peoples were nearly eradicated, uh, victim to plagues such as smallpox, measles and influenza. Well, the early. European settlers were primarily Scot- Scotch-Irish Presbyterians, like I mentioned. They were from Northern Ireland and Palatinate Germans. So the, the later immigrants in large numbers between 1720 and 1760 were fleeing religious persecutions and economic hardships, which that, that kind of drove that independent quality. That I mentioned earlier, you know, they were fleeing this persecution from their homeland. So they came here and they they set up shop in a very difficult area and laid claim to it. And that's where some of that, you know, that Appalachian independence. I don't need your your city ways came from. (laughs) Yeah. Um, They settled first in Pennsylvania. They gradually moved westward. Then, along with others, ventured down the greater Appalachian Valley of Virginia and North Carolina. Other early settlers moved inland from Carolina, Piedmont, over the regions into Kentucky and Tennessee, which became states in 1790 and 96, uh, respectively. So they traveled by wagon and horseback, following river valleys and Indian game trails, crossing the parallel ridges where streams had cut through the mountain chains at places like Saluda Gap, just south of present-day Asheville on the North, uh, North Carolina-South Carolina line and the Cumberland Gap, which is the furthest west point of Virginia on the Kentucky-Tennessee border. So most pioneers moved through the southern Appalachians to the Ohio River Valley onto Missouri, Arkansas, and further westward, but a permanent population attracted by the mountains remained in the valleys and coves to live by hunting, stock raising, and farming. By 1755, the Cumberland Gap area had several permanent clusters of dwellings. Uh, Watauga became the first settlement in Tennessee in 1768. After 1810, the stream of pioneer settlers began to slow, and by the 1830s it had all but stopped. The last major influx of pioneer migration to the southern Appalachians occurred after gold was discovered near uh, Dahlonega, Georgia in 1828. By 1830, between 6,000 and 10,000 people lived in northern Georgia, but many left when the gold rush ended. Now, when the pioneers first entered the southern Appalachians, they encountered the Cherokee culture. Like I said, trade between the white settlers and the Native Americans developed early and was a means of mutual influence. You know, pioneers learned from the Cherokee what crops to cultivate, how to farm and where where and how to hunt and the Native Americans received material goods from the white settlers. So the two cultures, however, did not remain compatible. Over the course of the 18th century, as settlers moved into the mountains, the Native American territory was circumscribed. Between 1767 and 1836, through a series of controversial treaties between the Cherokees and the state of North Carolina, the Native Americans, under severe pressure, gradually relinquished all tribal lands east of the Mississippi River. Although about 2,000 Cher- uh, Cherokees voluntarily immigrated to the West, many were hunted down, forcibly removed, and marched to Oklahoma by federal troops after 1838. So many of them died on this trail, and that's what we know as the Trail of Tears. Mm-hmm. Now, there a band of 1,000 Cherokees refused to leave and instead hid in the Great Smoky Mountains. So in 1878, with the aid of an attorney, William H. Thomas, these quote, fugitive Cherokees obtained title over 60,000 acres of land in Swain and Jackson Counties in North Carolina, which is site of the present koala Reservation. So the the mountains became basically a land of scattered, self-sufficient, quote, island communities Mm -hmm. that were divided by the hills and the ridges and stuff like that. So these... Communities generally consisted of like small clusters of two or three homes, which were within easy walking distance of each other. And groups of neighbors were often kinfolk. So you lived next to your grandparents and then your brother lived on the other side. Uh, later generations added to these clusters, but there they were rarely more than a dozen households together. Commercial settlements often developed at a gap at like a crossroads or at the mouth of a large hollow, but they were small, usually containing only one or two stores, a mill, a church, and a school. Larger towns were widely scattered and slow to grow. So that, that can still be seen in some areas of Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia, where you've got people that live down in these hollers. Mm-hmm. And yep. it was told to me when I first moved to Tennessee, that if you're in an area you don't know, don't drive into a holler that you don't know who is there because <coughs> for, good advice <laughs> for decades, centuries, they handled their own law mm-hmm. and you might just get disappeared for stepping on someone's property and they may not find you in Appalachia. So- if you don't know who's in the holler don't go traipsing down in a holler. You know nowadays it's probably not as bad but yeah. you still will probably get harassed and stuff if you just start driving into some family's holler there. But it's just it's interesting to me that 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 is not a new thing. That is something that from the time it was settled by the pioneers that they did. Each family had their own little holler or plane area, and the next family was the next holler over, and you'd have to travel a long way to get to them. You were basically isolated with you and your family there. And so it was it was like your own little paradise for mm-hmm. a lot of people. Now, in 1775, Daniel Boone established a route west through the Cumberland Gap in Virginia into Kentucky. So the route west led to monumental expansion of the United States, uh, their original 13 colonies, and made Boone a famous folk figure in Appalachia history in the the process. So if you live in Appalachia, you're going to know about Daniel Boone. Yep, yep, oh yeah. So the, quote, hillbillies of Appalachia were Scott Irish immigrants, and they were referred to by settlers as Billy boys due to their support of William of Orange. Hillbillies were derided as often wild, you know, often reclusive mountain people with fiercely loyal with fierce loyalty to family and a rejection of authority. They're also often associated with poverty in the Appalachian mountains. So, which is true, but it came from the term Billy boys. <laughs> so, if you want to call somebody something that they don't know what the heck you're talking about, call them a <laughs> Billy Boy.
2: I don't. I I guess I've never heard that term. That's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, yeah. I thought it was neat. Um, it, it's it, it gives a little history of why they were hillbillies. You yeah. Know, you don't you hear it? You've always said it. You've always been called it, but you don't know where it comes from. So.
2: And and I really honestly wasn't thinking that I would hear Will, William
1: of Orange tonight. I No, oh, well. it's just not it's not a historical figure you discuss very often. Until doing this research, I didn't think I'd say it. No, so, <laughs> that's right. So we always mention how old the Appalachians are, but how old are they actually? So Appalachian mountains in contrast. To the pointy peaks of the Rockies, they're weathered and rounded with gradual slopes, low rounded peaks, and soft edges. Well, in geologic terms, this shows a vast difference in age between the mountains. Think about how long it takes rain, wind, and dirt to erode an entire mountain peak. Mm -hmm. So if you just look at the, yeah, the Appalachians are lower than the Rockies are. That doesn't mean they're younger. That means right. they're older. Yeah. Um the mountains grow in reverse. Basically. I mean,
2: <laughs> they start out big and then they gradually get
1: smaller <laughs> as they get older. <laughs> At their tallest point, the Appalachians were likely as tall as the modern-day Rocky Mountains or the Alps. So, yeah. when they finished growing, they were Rocky Mountain Alps size. Um we don't know for sure because the age of them we hadn't been keeping records of them for long enough to yeah. know for sure. But the Appalachian Mountains are the shortest of the three U.S. mountain ranges with an average elevation of less than half of the other two ranges, so the, the Rockies and the Sierra Nevadas. So Appalachians on the east, Rockies in the middle, Sierra Nevada on the west. Kind of think of it that way. hmm So the highest peak Of the Appalachian Mountains is Mount Mitchell in North Carolina. It it reaches 6,684 feet above sea level. In the Rockies, Mount Elbert stands 14,440 feet above sea level. Yeah. Quite a difference. Now, the Appalachian Mountains were formed during the Ordovician period, roughly 480 million years ago. But it's not the whole story. Although the modern Appalachians were formed almost half a billion years ago, the process has been likely going around a, a lot longer than that. In fact, the region where the current mountains sit has been through a few cycles of mountain building, each lasting between 300 and 500 million years. So the initial growth of the mountain range, so the first cycle where they were formed, likely began over 1 billion years ago, when North and South America fused together for the first time. Additionally, the rocks that make up the mountains formed around 1.2 billion years ago. So asking, quote, how old are the Appalachians is kind of a tough question to answer. Well, this next bit is a snippet from Steve Kite, who's a geology professor at West Virginia University. And he talks about the cycles of growth and erosion in regards to the Appalachian through time. He says, quote, there were a couple mountain building episodes and those mountains formed and then were wore down. Things were kind of quiet. Then those mountains formed even later, about 450 million years ago, and those wore down and things were kind of quiet. And then about 360 million years ago, another mountain building episode, and then the big Alleghanian mountain building episode, end quote. So, the Appalachia area has gone through several cycles of growth and erosion. Well, scientists are a bit confused as to how the modern Appalachia, so the most recent building period, even began. Some even think it's the result of the geologic activity on the west coast near the Rockies. So if there is a ton of activity deep under the earth on one side of the country, it could easily affect the other. Regardless, the current period of the Appalachians likely began around 20 million years ago when the current topography we see began to settle. The initial mountains were clearly, clearly formed when the North American plate began to press up against the African plate. So if you look at a map, a topography map, we have the Appalachians on the east coast of the United States. Mm-hmm. Then if you look on the west coast of Africa, there is a mountain range. Those at one point were connected when when Pangea mm-hmm. was a thing. And then they ripped apart and started wearing down. So real interesting how old Appalachia is. But uh, like I said, the most recent growth is the, the most puzzling part to them because the, the mountains were worn down to a flat plain region and were brought back during the Cenozoic era. But they, they don't know how for sure what we see the Appalachians were raised back up. So this makes me think, and, and I've told you this before, Matt, I don't remember if I've said it on an episode before or not, but if we look at the age of the Appalachians and we look at how long they've been around, you know, let, let's take out the building and, and wearing down thought. Let's just think about that area, how long it's been mountains, because even after it wears down, there's caves, mm-hmm. there's stuff that's still going to be there from the, the mountain. What could the Appalachians hold? You know, I'm a firm believer that there are spirits, entities, whatever, that have been here since the dawn of time. Mm -hmm. What a lot of old horror writers would call the ancient ones. You know, I I think there, there are things on our planet like that, that have been here from maybe before the dawn of humanity. So if that's the case in North America, one of the few places that I think they could hide and stay hidden would be the Appalachian mountain range, you know? And, and if you think about that, then that kind of helps you understand some of the legends that, that Matt's going to get into some of the, the, the stories that are told maybe some of the creep factor because there are some spooky ass places in the Appalachian mountain range. Yes, there's a lot of beautiful, beautiful places, but there's some places you go that as soon as you go down in this holler, and it's not because of the Billy boys that live there, you, you get this creepy feeling. You, mm-hmm. you feel like you're being watched. Yeah. You feel like your skin's crawling, something's walking up on you. Why is that? Well, it could be due to the age of the area, there is something ancient that lives within the Appalachian mountain range.
2: Yeah. And I, I agree a hundred percent, especially with the idea that if, if there's something like that in North America, that is where it's going to be. Yep. So considering all that. We can we can look into some of the stories and legends that are associated uh, with Appalachia, um, and and I've kind of I've kind of reorganized this several times, but um, this this is this is how we're gonna because we like I said at the beginning we've got a lot of different things. There's there's uh, I, I tried to get as much variety into this as I could, um, but but Adam was talking about the the wildlife that lived there. Um, the wildlife that currently lives there. But when we're talking about how old the, the mountains are, how old the region is, there's bound to be some other things that, that were there at one point that aren't there anymore, but there may be something lingering on, yep. such as the Silver Giant.
1: Things we don't know about that we haven't cataloged. Yeah. And yeah, it could be something legit.
2: Yeah, so the silver giant is is similar to a bear um except it can run according to legend as easily on two legs as it can on four. Now, when standing upright, the silver giant is between 9 and 11 feet tall. So this this thing is really really large. Um the fur is generally dark but it has a silver streak of hair running down its back. So the the silver giant is a, is a legendary animal from from this region um with you know, numerous sightings of what would easily be mistaken as a bear but it's a really really big bear and yeah. and black, black bears don't get to be just they certainly don't get Between nine and eleven feet tall.
1: No, no. Um, That's uh, grizzly, grizzly size or polar bear size. Yep. Or uh, so to have something that big living in the Appalachian Range is not something categorized by scientists. But could it be an ancient species still lingering on? could it be like a hybrid yeah. you know something
2: yep. that you know as has got is is bear but you know it's um it's a genetic mutation or it's a you know a a, con- a conglomeration of of grizzly and black bear brown bear those kind of things who knows um but it is often it, it is often talked about uh you know by you know, people in the in the mountainous region, um, as if you know, there's there's still some out there. You right. know, they you know it's it's been spotted and the and that that unique silver streak that goes down its back. You know, now now we can think maybe it's part bear, part gorilla.
1: Yeah, I was and, gonna say <laughs> part silverback, yes, North American the, silverback, the North American silverback gorilla. Yeah, actually no, okay. that that was that was my uncle, but. <laughs> 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 and in the same vein,
2: I I, I dig this one just because the name is so cool. The smoke wolf, um, the solid black smoke wolf, is a massive canine that's said to have eyes as red as the sun. Now, one witness who claims to have heard the smoke wolves howl and scream at night. Uh, out on his property says these things are pure evil saying that these wolves they kill for fun for mm-hmm. sport you know not for hunting um and and it's just really uh i mean it, it's it sounds to me like um like a almost like a spirit animal yeah. like the black dogs um that mm-hmm. we talked about mm-hmm. you know that were uh the reports of the the black dogs or the grim um in in the UK you know it's know. A, it's a
1: spectral it's a spectral dog right what well, we know that wolves once inhabited that region right so could this there once again could this be a lingering small population of a wolf that we don't know about or Like you're saying, could this be a spectral dog, Mm -hmm. the maybe physical incarnation of an ancient spirit that everybody who lived there has seen and dealt with? Yeah. And that's why the stories get passed on is it's it's something that anybody who lives there or stays there for any amount of time will encounter this spirit of the smoke wolf.
2: Yeah, or it, at least if they don't see it, they hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've and, never, I've never seen um, a solid black wolf. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not saying they don't exist. I've just, I've just never seen one. Um, from what, uh, from what I understand, they're quite rare. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So that. Yeah. They. Uh, they do exist but they they are extraordinarily rare um, So a large black solid black wolf um, you know e- even if even if it was a regular size wolf but seen out in the woods you know hundred 150 years ago might not realize hey we don't see other black wolves. What is yeah. the deal with this one? Yeah. you know why is he here? He must be evil um there there's you know it's a one-off so Mm -hmm. you're like this is this is so out of the norm it's going to lead to stories you know there's a there's a black wolf up in these hills um then it becomes you know there's a, a spectral black wolf and now it's a smoke wolf and interesting thing about the smoke wolf legend is they said the only thing that will deter a smoke wolf is the sound of rattling chains
1: you know, if I heard rattling chains in the woods at night, it'd deter me too. Yeah. But I was thinking about the the sound. You said, if you don't see it, you hear it. Mm-hmm. So think about the animals that we know live there. There's not anything I know of that would make a sound that you would mistake for a wolf other than a wolf. Right. So, either we have wolves coming back, and they don't know about it, or we have a spectral wolf. Yeah. And it's not just described as a
2: howl, but a howl and, and a scream. Mm. Um, you know, so that would, that even if you were used to hearing wolves howl, uh, as the screaming aspect of it would make it different. So, yeah. you would kind of recognize, hey, there's something else. This isn't just a wolf. Now this next one is 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 really really kind of cool. This is called the Raven mocker, uh, and this is according to Cherokee legend. As Adam said, you know the Cherokee was the, um, was the most common tribe um, in Southern Appalachia, uh, and that's where this legend comes from. But the Raven mocker is a shape shifting Bigfoot type creature. It stands about seven feet tall with black fur and solid white eyes. Now, some people consider this to be a type of Bigfoot Um, and it's believed to inhabit Southwest Virginia and it's able to shift into any animal and can also take on the appearance of an old man or woman. Now in its human form, the raven mocker can lure among unsuspecting can lurk among unsuspecting people and eat their hearts from their chest without ever leaving a mark
0: hmm.
2: now that that does that does really sound like other native american legends that we have heard describing you know a, a different entity um it it has touches of skinwalker to it mm-hmm. um that that whole the whole shape shifting and the and the ability to appear human um that that's another if you can if you're the shape shifting creature and you can appear human it allows you to get much closer to humans than you would right. normally be able to be so you know if if that is this uh that is this creature's uh, mo. It's it's gonna want to get as close as it can if it if its end goal is to eat your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, really cool and and what was even what was even more neat about the raven mocker is I have not heard this name before, right? And and as much Native American folklore and and legends that we have looked into, I have not come across the raven mocker.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: so that's that one one was a new one on me but since we're talking about the raven mocker let's talk about let's talk about bigfoot um bigfoot legends uh within the appalachian region are off the charts okay oh yeah it's it's the perfect area um you know heavily wooded mountainous you know difficult terrain to, you know, to traverse. Um, and, and the legends of quote wild men in the woods date all the way back to ancient times, you know, including, um, the indigenous cultures in Europe have legends of, of like I said, quote wild men that live out in the woods or in the mountains. Um, the, uh, a logging company employee named Jerry crew discovered an extra large set of footprints in six rivers, national forest. And the rumors quickly spread. Um, and that's where the name Bigfoot began to, to become used routinely. Right. You know, because Hey, <laughs> this thing's got big feet, man. Mm-hmm. Look at this. what, well, I wonder what it is. It's a Bigfoot. Well, you know, that jackass is like <laughs> what, do you, what, what do you call this thing with big feet? Let's call it Bigfoot.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> right.
2: And it's stuck.
1: Gee, thanks.
2: <laughs> Could have been anything. <laughs> Could have been Clyde, you know, yeah, but right. <laughs> instead, oh, it's Bigfoot. You know how to get creative. Um but prior to the 20th century, uh, everybody referred to Bigfoot as like Sasquatch or Yeti um, and and this is the Appalachia has the you know has the uh, the claim to fame of you know carrying on the Bigfoot name mm-hmm. but uh, the indigenous tribes in Appalachia also, had their own Sasquatch legends uh, outside of the Raven Mocker, um, and that when the European settlers moved in, that's where they began to hear the legends um, of of wild men or or these large um, bipedal primates, you know, that lived in the woods and the mountains, and so the Europeans took those legends and of course they just added to them. Um, But thousands of Bigfoot sightings have been reported um, all over the U S but there are, uh, there are large concentrations in Appalachia, including um, the sightings reported in in the North Georgia mountains. So um, you can, uh, you can go to the, the uh Bigfoot festival in Marion, North Carolina uh which is the, the these festivals to celebrate uh these different creatures that that is an Appalachian thing, I'm telling you. Oh yeah. I mean they they they've got festivals for all the monsters. Let me tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the Mothman. The Mothman is another one. Uh won't get into too much detail about the Mothman, but I think mostly if you're listening to this show you've at least heard about the the mothman of point pleasant west virginia and again right smack dab in appalachia um and and of course he's got his own statue and and his own festival it's it's, that's it's a big deal the mothman festival is oh yeah um but it again it's right there in appalachia and that's a more modern legend um but it does come out of this out of this area now it, it's uh, well let's stay on this theme um of of uh unique animals or or cryptids or however you want to put it uh the wampus cat mm-hmm. you know adam knows the wampus cat uh also known as the cherokee death cat which that's a much cooler name Oh, um, I
1: agree. <laughs> it's, wampus uh, is weird.
2: <laughs> well, I, I I'll touch on this in a minute. I, I the the wampus, that I've I've got some history with that that name. All right. Um, but the wampus cat is a large cat similar to a mountain lion or a cougar. It has tan yellow fur, but it has six legs and large yellow eyes. So that that'll make it stand out sure but the legends the legend says that a cherokee woman was cursed by tribal elders for witnessing a sacred pre-hunt ceremony she hid under the pelt of a large cat and got turned into basically a half woman half beast but this is this is a pretty famous appalachian myth Now, this woman was forever left to wander alone through the mountains, and the wampus cat acts out in anger at being cut off from her former life. She's known for standing on her hind legs and using her supernatural powers to drive her victims to insanity. Now, despite this being a story about Cherokee people, the wampus cat folktale did not originate with the Cherokee people. Instead, the name came from the Goldsboro News Argus newspaper in North Carolina. So the Wampus Cat, we're talking about the name. I had a game when I was a kid, I had a computer game. I had, uh, this I was, I'm showing my age and Adam won't even remember that these existed. Um the first actual computer that I ever owned was made by Texas Instruments. And it was essentially a keyboard with a cartridge slot mm. that connected to a television. Okay. Okay. Not a computer monitor. It didn't, it didn't really have, it didn't have a hard drive, or a hard drive, disc drive, any of that stuff. Okay. It was essentially a keyboard and a processor. And you could buy uh, cartridge games for the Texas instruments home computer. And one of the games I had was called, Hunt the Wumpus.
0: <laughs>
2: hmm. it, it wasn't really a cat. And it was more of a turn-by-turn text-based game with some very minor graphics. But when I saw a Wumpus Cat, I thought, Hunt the Wumpus. I had that game.
1: And it, it may have been inspired by this tale of the Wumpus Cat. Yep.
2: So, the, the name came from, the in 1964, there was a hairy ape man, who sounds more like Bigfoot, was reported to be roaming around US-70. And the newspaper named this creature the Wampus Cat, and the name stuck. But the name likely derives from the word Catawampus, which is, a, uh, there's a mountain folklore saying that describes the boogeyman, or... Something that has gone very badly. And if you'd hung out with me for any period of time, you'll hear me say cattywampus. Oh, yeah. You know, yep. when something uh, is not right,
1: it is. Yeah, My family said that before. <laughs> it's like, man, your car is pretty cattywampus, man. Yeah.
2: yeah. And uh, Strange Ways Brewing, uh, which has locations in Richmond and Fredericksburg, Virginia, brews a beer named after the wampus cat. The Wampus Cat Triple IPA. Hmm. And and even further, the name was also used for a mythical creature in J.K. Rowling's Pottermore story, The History of Magic in North America.
1: Hmm. Yeah, pretty cool. I would try that Wampus Cat Triple IPA if it was not an IPA. I hate IPA. I know. I They're not my favorite either. I hate them. Real hoppy taste. It's yeah. like, I, I don't, I don't want to chew a hops. <laughs> you know, I, if i wanted to do that i'd go to the yeah. plant and start chewing
2: yeah i know
1: all you people out
2: there you're going oh man you know i'll, I'll give you a great ipa that you'll love
1: yeah don't. trust me
2: i've already i've already been down that
1: road ain't gonna happen
2: yeah i don't like it it's not my it's not my cup of tea
1: i'm not into the 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 ipa you know micro brews from jack and billy boys <laughs> brewing I, yeah. I don't care i'm not going to drink an ipa sorry
2: yeah didn't didn't happen
1: Getting Yeah. an I don't ale like- or a lager i'm i'm yeah. great with one of those
2: yeah now let's let's move over to uh ohio now in a small section of the appalachian appalachian mountains uh in ohio is Lake Hope State Park. Now, this is a park that is not just beautiful, it's historical. Um, But it comes with an old ghost story. Now, in the park are the remnants of a massive furnace built to process the iron ore that was found in the area. Now, in order to maximize productivity, the furnace was left on at night and was tended to by watchmen to make sure that nothing happened uh, to anything or to anyone that was near it. But as the story goes, somehow one of the watchmen was killed right there at the furnace. Now, whether he slipped and he fell into the furnace, or something startled him and he fell off the platform, or some even say he was struck by lightning, um, we don't really know. But all the stories share the same detail and that's that the ghost of the watchman returns on dark stormy nights to continue looking after the Lake Hope furnace. So I mean that's a, that is a, that's a fantastic regional story associated with you know a, a historical uh piece of equipment you know that yep. that's still there today. I've seen pictures of the Lake Hope f- furnace before. Um I think we've, I don't know that we've mentioned it specifically, but we've mentioned something similar that it's also in Ohio, mm-hmm. um, you know, but, but really cool and, a, and, a, and a cool story to go along with it. You know, that, that's a great time to go out and say, Hey, let's go look at the Lake Hope furnace. Oh, as we're out here, let me tell you this story, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. it's always the good one about, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, dark and stormy night, you know, the, heard a knock at the door and then the radio said the killer was you know kind of similar yeah yep um this one i i can't remember if if you've talked about this before adam i know i haven't but these are the moon eyed people
1: oh yeah
2: yeah i seem yeah. To, if if we haven't talked about it on the show adam and i have have had a conversation where this came up before I know. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is, uh, this has an Appalachian folktale aspect and a Cherokee legend um, that goes along with the Moon-Eyed people. Let me tell you why. Um, These were supposedly a group of pale skinned humanoids that were named the Moon-Eyed people. um, And they were thought to be hiding somewhere in the Appalachian Range. They're usually associated with the small town of Murphy, North Carolina. The Moon-Eyed people are short, stout, white-skinned, with bearded faces and large blue eyes. Their eyes were supposedly so sensitive to the sun that they were nocturnal, which is how they got the name the Moon-Eyed. Legend Mm -hmm. legend says that the local Native American tribes waited for the full moon to drive the Moon-eyed people from their underground caves. The bright light made them weak, forcing them to flee into other parts of Appalachia for good. But unlike other Appalachian monsters, the Moon-eyed people were considered to be a distinctly separate race of people rather than supernatural beings. So it... You know, it it seems kind of obvious, but the moon-eyed people were most likely other European settlers. But what makes the legend so shocking is that it date dates back hundreds of years before Christopher Columbus discovered America. Quote: discovered right. America. So, um, it it doesn't make sense that there would be an entire settlement of Europeans in North America at the time that these, these legends go back to, Mm. I mean, you, you would, you would immediately think, okay, the Cherokee legend is describing a a blue eyed white people um, that had, had settled in this area.
1: The only thing I can think of is there are a lot of legends of Vikings discovering, North America yeah so if this if this isn't a supernatural thing it they could be just uh, describing the Vikings however the Vikings were known to you know pillage and plunder right and I I don't know that a light would scare them off uh, yeah you know I mean? so a, a much
2: more aggressive um Especially the ones that were the explorers, Mm -hmm. you know, the Viking Mm -hmm. explorers. They were the warriors, you know, Mm -hmm. they were, they were seeking out new land. They were not, you know, peace loving, you know, but, you know, if if somebody was trying to drive them out of of an area, they would have fought back.
1: Exactly. Um, And and, that's the only reason I don't think it could be Vikings, but I, I could see the legend maybe starting if the vikings had made it here and encountered the native yeah. americans and i
2: i may be wrong but aren't aren't vikings generally considered to be tall taller yeah. i mean yeah. you know scandinavian
1: they are people are yeah.
2: typically taller so it it it, it doesn't fit but th- there's really not a, we don't have another explanation of why there would be white settlers in that area at the time mm mm-hmm. mhm so, you know, the question comes up, are are the Moon-Eyed people just another scary story from, you know, Appalachia, you know, or are, are they actual European settlers who didn't get their credit for coming here? You know, right. just set out, you know, and said, we're going that way.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: But you can find exhibits on the Moon-Eyed people at the Cherokee County Historical Museum in Murphy. There is a three-foot-tall sculpture of two conjoined figures thought to represent moon-eyed people, which was found in the early 1840s. Now, Fort Mountain, a Georgia state park near uh, Elijah, Georgia, contains the ruins of an 850-foot-long stone wall that was said to have been constructed by the moon-eyed people. Hmm. Yeah. So I mean this uh, th- this is this is a really a really cool one because um it has all the aspects of a of a good legend of some, you know, peculiar people that used to inhabit the mountains. But there's a lot of evidence that maybe they were they were actual just real people that looked different than yeah. the natives that live there. Right. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. You would think if they were, if they were so nocturnal, that, that almost sounds like, like Druish. Um, you know, they would, you know, yeah. a, a lot but of their practices in, involved, um, you know, being at night and, and you know, studying the moon and, I don't know. It's 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 peculiar, that to say the least.
1: Yeah, but when looking at that, we have to we we have to take two things into account. I think one is that we just discussed it in our giants episode. The Native American, the bunch of different groups of Native Americans described Giants people, and we have found evidence of their being larger than average people for the time in North America. Mm-hmm. So if they're describing moon eyed people, I would say there's quite possibly we could find evidence of a race of people similar to that mm-hmm. that they're describing that lived here at one point in time and maybe died off, mm-hmm. maybe and. A race of early hominids or something that continued to live on until at some point before European settlers came, o- came mm-hmm. over here. But we also, need, if you look at the sculptures that are the sculpture that's said to be the Moon-Eyed People, mm-hmm. what does it look like? It looks like greys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sure does. So I'm not saying I'm going to pull the Giorgio Tsoukalos thing. I'm not saying it's aliens, but, you know, what if we got some of our belief of the way grays look from this group of peoples that were described as the Moon-Eyed people?
2: Yeah. And- it's funny. Go go look at this photo um, because you've seen this sculpture. You just don't realize that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you, especially if you're into the the whole ancient, ancient aliens type thing um, that, you know, the idea that ancient civilizations had assistance in what they, what they learned and how they knew, uh you know, movement of the stars and other celestial bodies, uh, you know, you'll see these images that they're like, doesn't this look like an alien being? Doesn't this look like what you hear described as as an alien? And this picture will show up. So Mm -hmm. you just didn't realize what you were looking at. But this is actually considered to be a sculpture of the moon-eyed people.
1: But if you look at other representations of moon eyed people, they do look kind of animalistic. Now, is it because they were nocturnal and whatever? Or is it because that was a true species of hominid? But we're looking at Australopithecus Mm -hmm. because Australopithecus was a smaller humanoid. That we know lived. I mean, I've got a replica skull, Australopithecus skull, and we know they lived. We found it. Mm-hmm. So, what if this was a species similar to Australopithecus that lived alongside the Native Americans and it, they just became legend because they died out or they interbred or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Now, this next one is a
2: true Appalachian mountain mystery. And Adam and I have talked about it before, the Brown Mountain Lights. Oh, yeah. And locals and tourists alike Love have this. have reported these orb-like lights in blue, white, orange, and red hovering about 15 feet off the ground in the Brown Mountain area near Morgant- uh, Morganton, North Carolina. Now, the legend behind it tells of a brutal battle between Cherokee and uh, Catawba warriors on Brown Mountain, which left many dead on the battlefield. In the evenings, Catawba women went searching for their sons, husbands, brothers, and fathers, using torch lights to guide them. Many claim that the lights seen today are the spirits of the Catawba women still searching for their loved ones. the first recorded sighting of the Brown Mountain Lights happened in 1771 when German engineer John William Gerard de Brom wrote about seeing the lights in his journal. But his written account stated that he saw the lights at a consistent time every night, leading many people to believe he was actually seeing train lights in the distance. And if, if you want to know more about the Brown Mountain Lights, um, Go and check out uh our episode forty two where we discuss the Brown Mountain Lights in more detail. Um You had
1: to look that up. You didn't remember.
2: Nah, you're right. I looked it up. <laughs> <laughs> so oh yeah. We're more my, I, I couldn't I couldn't give you the episode number of something we did two months ago. <laughs> we're almost two hundred <laughs> past that yeah,
1: we're <laughs> like a hundred was a long time that. ago. <laughs>
2: yeah. But we did talk about it. And we did talk about it in detail. Um, But there was a, 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 there's a lot of uh, theories. There's a lot of theories that say it's, it's reflected light, it's headlights, it's something else. Um, But when you really get into the eyewitness accounts, you're like, yeah, this isn't headlights. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is not headlights. Um, But the, um, the other recorded accounts of the Brown mountain lights have happened all throughout the 20th century, especially as the Linville area gained access to electricity. (laughs) Um, but while reported sightings of the, of the lights are known for their inconsistency, the lights are typically seen at night and especially after a rainfall. Um, so if you if you want to visit and and have a chance to see the brown mountain lights for yourself, the Brown Mountain Overlook, Wiseman's View Overlook, and Lost Cove Cliffs Overlook are the most popular places to see them. They're all located off North Carolina one hundred five South or North Carolina one eighty one near Asheville and Boone, and and they have they have really even if you don't see the lights, these are these are really great scenic views any time of day. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but if you want to, if you want to get a shot at seeing the lights, you go at night. Now that I, I, like I said, I I couldn't, I couldn't include all of them. I tried to get a variety. We've had, we've had cryptids. We've had, you know, spectral animals. We've had haunted, uh, haunted historical equipment. Uh, We got Bigfoot. But I kind of thought I would save the best for last, and I think a lot of people forget that this is still an Appalachian legend. And I think because it is so close to me, and as I said, I'm right on the edge of what's considered Appalachia. It's the Bell Witch, Yep. and yep. probably one of one of the the most famous legends. Um, oh, I, from, I
1: wouldn't say yeah from Appalachia,
2: sure. and and. You know what we said. We we don't want to dig in too deep here, um, but the the story of the Bell Witch began in Robertson County, Tennessee, in a in a town called Adams, um, which is about about an hour hour ten minute drive from me from where I live. Uh, I've I've been to Adams many times. I used to work up that way. Um, uh. It it has a different feel. I mean, it just does. Uh, I used to work with a lady that was a descendant of of uh of the Bell Witch herself. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um That's or at wild. least who who they who who they attribute it being who they yeah. said, yeah. Um but the legend centers around the Bell family. Um the Bell Witch who's thought to be a woman named Kate Batts uh was supposed supposedly cheated in a land purchase by John Bell, who was the patriarch of the Bell family. The hauntings began sometime between 1817 and 1821, when the Bell Witch would show up disguised as an animal, such as a dog or a bird. She would often focus on John's daughter, Betsy Bell, pulling the sheets off her bed or even physically harming her with kicks, punches, and scratches. John Bell grew so concerned by these violent escalations that he shared his story with a family friend named James Johnston. Now, after Johnston experienced the spirit firsthand, word quickly began to spread, and the Appalachian ghost story eventually became famous enough to reach General Andrew Jackson. And according to the legend, Jackson and his party set up their tents outside of the Bell home one man claiming he had knowledge of how to deal with witches boasted that silver bullets were what was keeping the witch at bay to punish him. The wits, the witch set her sights on the man, giving him a beating that had Jackson's men begging to leave. Oh, wow. Now after John Bell's mysterious death in 1820, The Bell Witch continued to haunt his family. She even forced Betsy to break off her engagement with Joshua Gardner before eventually disappearing for good. Now, some stories claim that she promised to return to haunt John Bell's direct descendants in 1935, uh, but there are no reports um, from Nashville physician Dr. Charles Bailey Bell, who would have been the direct descendant.
1: Well, Dr. Charles Bailey Bell, please reach out <laughs> to Graveyard Tales podcast yeah, if I you have experienced anything. If Dr. Bell's still around, he's really old. Um Okay, so family of Dr. Charles <laughs> Bailey Bell, please reach out to Gra-
2: But I'm I'm telling you, and and growing up around here, um, you know, the stories of the bell I mean, we had we we had we talked about the bell witch in school. I remember in elementary school discussing this, you know, you'd hear these stories on and on and on. there's multiple books um, about the Bell Witch and they go into detail of the story. And if you've never really sat down and read um, the history of the Bell Witch of Adams, Tennessee, take the time to do so. It is it is just it's enthralling. It will pull you in and it will really make you question what this doesn't this does not sound like a hoax which you know the bell family was accused of that many times um you know this sounded like some somebody if it was Katie bats or someone else um someone had knowledge of the black arts and w- yep. was able to to do this much harm to this one family.
1: And if you want to hear a podcast about it, our good buddy Scott and Forrest over at Astonishing Legends did a multi-part series years ago yeah. on the Bell Witch, yeah. and it was awesome. So if you want to hear a, a a long-form discussion about it, go check them out, Astonishing Legends, if you haven't listened to them already. But Adam, I think
2: this this is the perfect lead-in to our follow-up show that will be over on Patreon, where we're going to discuss the ghost stories uh, from Appalachia. Um, mm-hmm. Tonight, we decided we were going to focus on the legends, but there are so many ghost stories. And and they come from things like this, the Bell Witch, um, other, uh, other experiences that are similar, and, um, some of them are just good old fashioned you don't go down here because this is going to mm-hmm. get you. You know, the this this person Yeah. Down. This person's ghost, this evil spirit. If you see a blue light in the woods, don't go after it because it's mm-hmm. a, all of those things. So, we're going to be discussing those in a in a Patreon episode. So, only on Patreon. Only on Patreon. So if you wanna get the rest of this story, if you wanna hear all of those ghost stories, you gotta t- tune in, join Patreon. Now is a great time to do it. You're gonna get some bonus content and of course um you know all the all the uh the new things that Adam and I have in the works uh for our Patreon uh, members. And we thank you guys so much for sticking with us for so long we appreciate it it it's how adam and i keep the show rolling um mm-hmm. so we really appreciate you go over there and take a look at that stuff um but you know this is this is the time of the show where we ask hey what do you think um we know we we said at the beginning of the show we did not cover everything this was not um a, a, an a to z primer uh for appalachian legends and i know that we've got listeners that know so many more that that live in that area, have lived in that area their whole lives, had family in that area their whole lives. Um, We would love to hear your Appalachian legends. And the best place to share those is in our Facebook group. Uh, Go on Facebook. It's called The Graveyard. We've got thousands of members that share stories like this all the time. We love to hear them. It's a, it's a safe place. No one's going to make fun of you. No one's going to think you're a loony. Everybody just wants to hear these incredibly cool stories. Um, when you're done there, you can check out our website, which is graveyardpodcast.com. And there you can find links to purchase Graveyard Tales merchandise. You can even listen to the show. And that is where you can sign up to become a patron and get access to all of that that great bonus content. Whew, Lord, this was this was a fun one. It, it, I it's gonna it. it's, it's gonna get even more fun. Um, but until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard.
1: See you soon.